Join us now on The Collector Show with Harold Nickel. to another week's worth of The Collector Show. I'm Harold Nickel. A very, very good program for us this week. We're going to be talking to several representatives of the Charles M. Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa, California. And for those of you who may not know it, Charles M. Schultz was the cartoonist who drew the peanut strip and invented characters like Charlie Brown and Linus and Lucy and, of course, everyone's favorite beagle, Snoopy. And that's going to take up the majority of this show. In addition to the representatives from the museum, we have a very special guest, Jean Schultz, who is the widow of Mr. Charles M. Schultz, joins us for a few minutes to talk about Mr. Schultz and the strip and the museum. You won't want to miss that. And then later in the program, we are going to learn about a potentially lethal <laughs> collectible lunchboxes and the potential lethality of lunchboxes, why they were banned in the state of Florida, and how they evolved as a result, coming up with our good friend Heather Gallegos in the Found Collectible segment. Because the show has so many different segments this week, we're going to dispense with the news from the world of collecting and get right into it with our friends from the Charles M. Schultz Museum. We're going to talk first with Karen Johnson, who's the director, coming up next on The Collector Show. <music> Well, this week on The Collector's Show, we're going to have a number of surprises for you. But the main thing we're going to talk about this week is the Charles M. Schultz Museum and Research Center, which is located in Santa Rosa, California. And joining us is Karen Johnson. And Karen has the privilege of being the director of the Charles M. Schultz Museum and Research Center. And Karen, welcome to The Collector's Show. Well, thank you for having us. enjoy talking about Sparky anytime. Now, one of the things that listeners to this show may not realize is that Mr. Schultz's nickname, he didn't go by Charles or Charlie, he went by Sparky. Well taken. Thank you, Harold. Yeah. Adding that in. Yeah, he's uh, such an icon of the last, I mean, if, if you were an American or if you were a citizen of the world in the last 50 years of the 20th century, there is no way you didn't know about the Peanuts comic strip and you didn't, you couldn't not know the characters. And I'm really thrilled that there's a museum that captures not just um, not just the cartoon strip, but just the things that he contributed to popular culture everywhere. That's right. Well, the whole rule when uh, Mrs. Schultz uh, talked to Sparky about this originally was that this really, we need to commemorate and remember your artistic genius. Absolutely. You know, because this is about a man who for 50 years sat down every day at a drawing table and through his artistic genius and his line art, as we like to call it, created this entity for the world that the world has, as we know, been fed by and laughed with and uh, built memories for generations for family. Absolutely. Now, the museum, since I was there, is, is new. That's correct. Um, now, when I was there, they had the, uh, I think it was called the Redwood Skating 
they have, we, he built with his first wife, Joyce, the uh, Redwood Empire Skating Rink, right. uh, which is the most beautiful skating rink in Northern California. It is gorgeous. It is gorgeous. And then across the street is the area you are remembering, which is the Snoopy, Snoopy Gift and Gallery. Right. And then upstairs in the mezzanine is where he displayed some of his letters from famous people and his Emmys. Right. And, and just so people could get a touch of what had gone on in his life. Well, they certainly wanted that. And I remember seeing the Emmys very vividly, even though this has been probably oh, at least 10 years ago yes, when we were there. Yes, yeah, now yeah. tell us about the museum. I think we got a sense of what the genesis was, but when we visit the museum, what will collectors experience? Well, first of all, people should know that this is a beautiful 27,000 square foot building that is built to commemorate, as I said earlier, and honor Charles Schultz's artistic legacy in this world. So our organizing principle is to teach people about all the influences in Charles Schultz's life, what led him to be a cartoonist, and then talk about his creative process and how he drew his strips and what were the influences in his characters. Uh, when you come to this museum, you are experiencing the creative process of this genius. Out of that experience comes Snoopy and yes. Lucy and the little red-headed girl. So we have the, his studio, a reenactment of his studio. You're going to see the actual drawing table that he almost you know, wore through, so to speak, from drawing there every 50 days. You'll see a timeline that talks about the significant things in his life. But most importantly, downstairs, we have rotating galleries. And right, right now, as an example that kind of shows the influence in Charles, Charles Schultz's influence in the world, we have the 40th anniversary of Apollo 10. And for those of your of your listeners who will remember uh, that Apollo 10, the module was named Charlie Brown right. and the capsule was named Snoopy. And then behind that, the, what Mrs. Schultz calls the heart of the museum is the strip rotation gallery. That's where people actually can come in. And the way I like to describe it is like looking over his shoulder when he's drawing. You get to see all the original dailies and Sundays that we theme. As an example, right now, the theme is laughter is the best medicine. And you get to see the lines, and you get to see the whiteout, and you get to see some of the eraser marks. My goodness. Sometimes. So it's a, you really are looking over Sparky's shoulder as he's creating Well, getting back to the uh, Apollo 10, I uh, was fortunate to be in Houston and attend uh, an exhibition of the Apollo 10 uh, memorabilia. And what what people, even who were that age like me, I was I'm old enough to remember that, um, but that that had such an influence at NASA that they had um, pens with Snoopy on it, safety awards with Snoopy it's on them. Snoopy award, that's correct. Absolutely. And uh, all different kinds of just stuff that they used around NASA that had uh, Charlie Brown and Snoopy on them. It is still, uh, we, ha we were honored to have Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan here, the astronauts who were actually, you know, flew Apollo 10 and were the command modules for the Snoopy um, Snoopy capsule, and they said that it is the most influential figure in NASA. I can I can easily believe that. Yep. Still to this day. I, I think I was maybe in the fifth grade when that took place, and I remember it uh, vividly. Now let's talk about, uh, you mentioned the rotating strip and looking over Mr. Schultz's shoulder, but you have other uh, exhibitions and future exhibitions that will come to the museum that I bet uh, right. yeah, people are going to well, be interested in knowing about. Next up, when Apollo comes down at the end of July, we do we are in what we call the second part of a trilogy of Language of Lines, mm -hmm. where it's called the cast of characters, where we're bringing in all the, well, as many cartoonists as we can find, our curator and Brian Walker, 
where the was the co-curator on this, mm-hmm. and it's what it's going to give our visitors is kind of looking into the minds of different cartoonists and why they created certain characters. Why did Patrick McDonald create Mutt? What do we know about the yellow kid that was created very, very early on? What do we know about uh, Mort Walker's, you know, cartoons? So it's going to be a fascinating way for people to step inside the cartoonist to understand why they developed the characters they did. That sounds like a university-level seminar kind of a Well, thing. I think it has that component to it, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. And anyone who loves comics does not want to miss this particular exhibit. No or way. anybody, because once again, yes, we emotionally attach to characters, and we see ourselves in them, or we love the vulnerabilities of them. But to come and see the artistic way that a character is created through the mind of a cartoonist just makes it deeper and richer for you. I was curious about, uh, we just celebrated uh, Memorial Day. Right. And I remember every June the 6th, Mr. Schultz would write a strip where Snoopy was invading Normandy. I was just going to mention that. In our upstairs gallery right now, we have uh, Remembering D-Day. Yes. And it, it, once again, I'm very blessed. The staff at this museum is top-notch. And what we have up there is not just the, the commemoration of Bill Malden and, and D-Day, but we have uh, some of Sparky's own experiences in World War II. We have his army jacket up there. Oh, wow. We have samples of World War II uh, rations. And we also have, for those of us, who, those of you who know, remember Sparky's biography, when he was in the army, he used to draw, he had a sketchbook, and it was titled As We Were, mm-hmm. and he also used to draw characters on envelopes that, just as a soldier, he would, you know, send home with his uh, colleagues, his colleagues and and uh, all of that is up there to be seen. I know that um, his service in the Second World War had a huge influence on him, but the other things that seemed to influence his work were uh, growing up in Minnesota. That's right. Because um, I knew he lived in California, but he drew winter scenes all the time. Well, and, and the whole idea of building the ice rink had to do with his love of hockey Absolutely. and uh, ice skating. Yes, it is directly proportionally related to his childhood. I no grew up. I grew up in southeast Texas, and I had no idea what a Zamboni was. <laughs> exactly. Nor did I. I grew up in Southern California, yeah. so we were on that same area, so to speak. Yep. I was uh, working on a video um, for the place where I work, and they don't have Zambonis anymore. They have something else. But um, Well, we still have a Zamboni, and it's decorated with all kinds of uh, Schultz penis characters, and it's quite wonderful to watch it skirt across that ice. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Collector's Show with Harold Nickel, and we're chatting with Karen Johnson, who's the director of the Charles M. Schultz Museum and Research Center. Now, I also notice on your website that you have some work devoted to Beethoven. Tell us about uh, Beethoven and his role in the uh, comic strip. Well, as, uh, as I said, we rotate, uh, our large gallery rotates, and prior to Apollo 10, we did Schultz's Muse, well, wait, I'm going to get this wrong, Beethoven's, Schultz's Beethoven, I can't remember, anyway. Schroeder's Muse. Schroeder's Muse, Schultz's Beethoven, pardon right. me. I, and for those of you who know, that was one of the defining themes throughout his uh, life with Schroeder and his love of Beethoven. But what a lot of people didn't know is that the notes that Schroeder played on that toy piano mm-hmm. were actually Beethoven's music, and you can play those notes, and you get a phrase from Beethoven's music. So when we put together the uh, show, 
not only are the notes real, but whenever Schroeder would be, you know, upset about something going on in Beethoven's life and he couldn't focus on being a catcher, all of those anecdotal statements about Beethoven's life are true biographical facts. So with this show, not only did we, you know, trace all the true bio—I mean, autobiographical facts about uh, Beethoven's life that Schroeder is, you know, just di distressed about throughout the strip, but we also had an audio track so you could listen to and think about it. Listen to a cartoon strip. Now, was he a musician, or did he have to go learn all this? literally would go and look at Beethoven's uh, musical pages and lift something out of it. But what was very interesting is that we were approached by Dr. Bill Meredith, who is the director of the San Jose Beethoven uh, Center, and mm -hmm. he's the one that told us, he was ve he's very adamant about this, that Mr. Schultz must have known music because he's convinced that any particular stanza or phrase that he selected from Beethoven's uh, music fit the particular strip. <laughs> and, of course, we're all kind of staring at Bill and going, hmm, because Sparky didn't know music. But, you know, for, he's convinced that Sparky memorized the Beethoven music, and we all know Charles Schultz was a fan of classical music. So who's to say that he didn't catch that a particular stanza had some kind of, you know, melodic note to it or some kind of verbato that would fit in with the gag line at the day? But well, it was it's pretty remarkable. And, you know, I doubt it was a coincidence. I don't know if he memorized it or not, but um, being it, as— It could be, Harold. I mean, the man was— He was a— yeah. very, uh, apt Absolutely brilliant. All right, I want to talk with you about the great pumpkin, who yeah. seemed to always be a source of faith and disappointment. Do you think there were aspects of his life that were like that? Oh, I'm sure. He's human. <laughs> you know, I think that's a real simple sweeping statement. I mean, the thing that we all identify with is Charles Schultz was not afraid to express all kinds of emotions. Right. Think about what that strip gave us. It gave us, in the name of humor, it gave us angst. Yes. It gave us hope. It acknowledged fear. It acknowledged disappointment. It acknowledged being a loser and how that felt to be a loser. Oh, yeah. It acknowledged crabbiness. And I'm and Sparky would be the first to say to you, to know me is to read my strip. Yes. And he always said, of course, all of those characters are a little part of me. How could they not be? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why they, are, they ring so true. I don't think we have enough authenticity in this life. And I think what is true is penis gives us authenticity. Absolutely. Now, for collectors who are going to be in Santa Rosa... California, what would you recommend they go see first at your museum? Well, I think, you know, as an organizing principle of the museum, I would send them down, this sounds silly to say this, to the video nook, uh -huh. that's what we call it. It's a nine-minute introduction by Mrs. Schultz about the museum, and what it gives people is an overview of why the museum was built on this property. Mm -hmm. It gives you an, it kind of gives you insight into Sparky and his life on this property. And then it talks about why the museum was built and why there's the wood is the way it is and why the open space is the way it is. And then she literally walks you through the galleries and said, and please be sure to be here and please go to the theater. So once you've left the video note, you have a sense of, oh, this is what I want to do next. Okay. And then I would have them go to the strip rotation gallery because that's where they're going to get the essence of Charles Schultz's art. So for people who are planning vacations to Northern California this coming summer, um, I'd certainly recommend um, checking out the Charles M. Schultz Museum. Give us your website. It's 
museum.org. And I think the other thing to say is it's not just a museum experience when you come to this property. Mm -hmm. For a family, they can spend a day here in joy. There's an ice skating rink, and we have the cafe, which is called the Warm Puppy Cafe. <laughs> is there anything cuter than that name? I can't think and of anything. You can ice skate during the summer. You can spend the afternoon ice skating. You have a great lunch. You can come over to the museum. We have an education center where the kids can draw. Any family of any age and any generation can come and spend the day at the Schultz Complex and have a full experience and experience Charles Schultz of life. And if you go to their website, they have um, a full listing of current exhibitions, things that are upcoming, um, and uh, artists who are going to be on site yeah. to give uh, classes. Yeah. I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. doesn't matter. Um, Come with your imagination and we'll put a pencil in your hand. Outstanding. Karen, thank you so much. You're welcome. Stay tuned to The Collector Show. More from the Schultz Museum coming up on, here on Web Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us this week on The Collector Show. We're going to continue our conversation about the Charles M. Schultz Museum and Research Center, which is located in Santa Rosa, California. And joining us in this segment is Nina Fairless. She is the collections manager at the Schultz Museum. And Nina, thanks for making time for us. Now, as the collections manager, you get to handle and work hands-on, close-up and personal, with all of the things that I'm going to bet collectors everywhere covet at the museum. That's right. I think so, too. Although we, we love our collectors and we appreciate all the collectors out there who are taking the time and um, have the passion to collect these items. And uh, we have a, a kindred spirit in that. Um, I, I think kindred spirit, I think that's extremely well said. Now, for the benefit of people who do collect, I want to ask you about... Um, Maybe not the more valuable things at the museum, but some of the uh, rarer pieces that you guys have as part of your collection. Tell us about those. Well, um, the collection is very broad here. We have a, our resource center, which um, takes care of uh, the library, archives, and our photograph collection. Mm -hmm. and it's um, overseen by our archivist here, Lisa Monhoff. Mm -hmm. um, that's published material, unpublished documents, letters, correspondence, um, uh, in his uh, photograph collection. And um, the collection that I oversee is um, primarily art and three-dimensional um, artifacts. So that includes uh, Charles M. Schultz's original um, art collection, including his published strips and um, art uh, drawings or sketches, animation art. Um, we also have his personal effects collection, which includes his sporting equipment, bowling balls, his clothing, his art supplies, his pen nibs, his ink and uh, paints, things like that, clothing. And um, we have also his personal art collection, which uh, included art that he collected over the years, and that includes lots of things from cartoonists, mm -hmm. um, other artists, and we also... Um, take care of the tribute art collection, which is art by other cartoonists and others that reference Peanuts or Peanuts characters or even Schultz himself sometimes. And, um, I think you're probably most interested in our product collection. Well, that's true. 
But now I want to, but I want to jump in because I want to ask you about the uh, dimensional. Now that sounds like sculpture to me. Oh, when I say three dimensional, mm-hmm. I just mean it uh, versus a two dimensional piece of artwork okay. or uh, a document or something like that. So when I I mean three D, I mean um, like a toy, you know, a doll okay. or um, a thing like a his bowling ball or baseball bat or tennis racket, things that are three dimensional. Now for the and for the benefit of the people who collect. Schultz items, those are a big part, well, they certainly are a big part of my Peanuts collection, are the toys, the dolls, um, Pez dispensers, those kinds of things. Do you run into people who are there trying to buy that stuff from you guys? Well, the museum is a collecting organization, and uh, we do not, we don't sell um, things that we collect. That would be a conflict. Okay. Of interest. So, Good. <laughs> um, there is the gallery across the road which sells, um, um, you know, new products, new toys, new games. I, I think they probably also have some older things that, you know, the museum doesn't need or want or have any interest in. Um, so, you know, sometimes there's things there. But primarily we are, we are collecting and um, we, are not, we are not selling our... And so thinking about the question from the other side of that uh, coin, would you be interested in buying collections from anybody? That's right. We do occasionally buy. Um, We are grateful for kind donations from collectors. We we are always thrilled to see what people have, what people collect. Um, Of course, as you can imagine, there are hundreds of thousands of collectors out there. Yes. We cannot take everything, and we do not want everything. We are definitely a um, museum that is bound by our mission, and we have a collecting plan that's overseen by a committee here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our goals and objectives are discussed, and um, we, we, we know the things that we need and that we're looking for, and Often a don- uh, potential donation might come through from a collector, mm-hmm. and we might say, um, well, let's have a look at what you have, and sure. let's think about what we need, and we, we definitely can't take every and anything, but we are always interested to see what people have, and we depend on donations. Occasionally, we do buy things mm-hmm. that are unique that we're looking for that we, maybe we need for a particular exhibit. Can you give me an example of something you had to go looking for? Um, well, right now we have several traveling exhibits that are um, traveling around the United States, and um, several of them are featuring a Charlie Brown pocket doll. Mm. I'm sure many collectors out there are familiar with the pocket doll um, series, which was uh, manufactured by Determined Productions in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. This particular Charlie Brown is wearing a baseball cap. He's an older doll. He's very cute. He's often in a plastic bag, mm-hmm. not, and finding him with his hat, with his clothing, with his bag is, as collectors know, you know, a real treasure. Oh yeah. When you have several traveling exhibits all demanding this one doll, we um, we're looking for uh, another another one of those Charlie Browns. So that's just one example. I have a ch- sitting here looking at my Charlie Brown Madame Alexander doll. Oh, right. That's uh, still in the box. Oh, great. Brilliant. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, but like uh, I think I mentioned earlier, and we talk about this all the time on the show, um, I enjoy the peanuts collecting because it reminds me of when I was a kid. Because when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, 
I was just religious about reading the strip, buying the books, um, watching the TV shows. And the thing that we learn on and that we hear about all the time on this program is that that's the reason why people collect things generally. It reminds them of their childhood or a happier time. That's right. I think that is especially true for peanuts collectors. That's especially um, a personal collection often. You can definitely have collectors collecting things that they're not particularly having that connection to, but um, peanuts is a different story. Now, you also say you oversee a collection of his of his uh, personal belongings. Do you have his golf clubs? That's right. <laughs> we have, uh, um, I think uh, we might be getting golf clubs soon. Um, we've got tennis rackets. No, we do have a golf club or two. Okay. Um, yeah, like the hats that he golfed in, his tennis shirts, mm-hmm. uh, tennis shorts. Um, yeah, um, things like that. We have his bowling ball and bowling shoes, um, lots of interesting little things, um, you know, his glasses, watch, things like that. Because I know that um, Charles Schultz was a huge sportsman himself, uh-huh. very active in sports, hockey and golf, and um, a lot of those activities showed up in the comic strip. That's right. That's right. It's an important important uh, topic for Schultz. Absolutely. Nina Fairless from the Charles M. Schultz Museum and Research Center, the Collections Manager. Thank you so much for being with us on The Collector's Show this week. Thank you. And stay tuned for more surprises on The Collector's Show. Coming up next, I'm Harold Nichol. Probably the best surprise I've had in a long, long time is going to come to all of us on The Collector's Show today. We are going to have the chance to talk with Mrs. Jeannie Schultz, who was indeed married to Charles M. Schultz. And Mrs. Schultz, welcome to The Collector's Show. Thank you. I'm glad to be there. Um, Our program focuses on uh, collectibles, and this week we're going to be talking about peanuts collectibles. And I just wondered, what was uh, Mr. Schultz's opinion of people who collected uh, all things peanuts? Well, I have to couch this a little bit. We like to tease people. (laughs) Uh, we have, there is a Peanuts Collectors Club, which I'm sure you know. Oh, yes. And I think it has about 3,000 members, and they meet out here typically every other year, I believe. Okay. And so I think the second year they met here, he asked, they asked him to be their keynote speaker. They've had a few other keynote speakers. They've had Judy Sladke, who is the premier um, performer in the Snoopy costume, mm-hmm. and some other people who who were licensees in the early days because they felt that would be interesting for the collectors to get to know them. Sure. But they did ask Sparky, and I believe we have this on tape, but it was very funny. He said, um, well, I'm glad you asked me here tonight to speak to you, even though I think you're all nuts. <laughs> so, so they all laughed and thought that was funny and probably agreed with it a little bit. Well, I I think all the people who collect are a little crazy. Um, but, you know, the reason, and, and I don't mind, I mentioned this to you before we uh, went on the air, the room that I have the studio in is called the Snoopy Room. And we are huge fans of uh, of the strip and of all things Peanuts. And um, But the reason I like collecting the things from the comic strip is because it reminds me of when I was a kid. 
Well, that's a good point, and I think a lot of people feel that way, too. And, of course, Sparky, in addition, after he said they were all crazy, <laughs> um, said that he under he his understanding was that people wanted, and, of course, he was glad, that they wanted to have a representation of something that made them feel good. Absolutely. In other words, they wanted to have that dog or that Charlie Brown character mm-hmm. because... Basically, it made them happy. The yes. characters make them happy and having the shirt with the thing on or the mug that they drink out of in the morning or right. whatever it is. Um, that, uh, that, that, and, and that, of course, did resonate with him. He understood that. And, of course, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the line is still licensed and still things uh, made collectible. Tell us, uh, give us an update on the state of licensing for uh, Peanuts characters. There's lots of stuff out there, yeah. And I'm not an expert in it, except to the extent that when Sparky died, we at his studio, and the studio was very small then, I think we had one person doing, two people doing approvals, mm-hmm. and if they got uh, stymied on something, they would bring it in to Sparky and say, what do you think of this? Mm-hmm. But since then, we have hired... I think we have six artists there, two of whom are sculptors. Oh, wow. Correct in detail all the things. And our decision then was that we had to bring the art and everything that everything that went on product back to the comic strip. Yes. So whereas there had been leeway in the past and there had been an art studio and two brothers in New Jersey who would render art that licensees wanted that they couldn't find in the comic strip. Yes. Um, he would draw it. And they did a very good job. Mm-hmm. But we have tried to pull it all back to the comic strip. <clears throat> and the other significant thing that happened since Sparky died is that he did not like his old art. Okay. Yeah, it changed a lot over the years. And I used to say... Oh, but it's so cute. Yes. I don't care. I don't like it. (laughs) And so that was the end of that conversation. But when it didn't take us very long to realize that everybody loves it. Yes. And that retro, in fact, you know, is high fashion. Yes. And so we did then select and release art to licensees that came from the 50s. And... In some cases, I saw a group of cards that somebody at Hallmark had designed for France, mm-hmm. and they were wonderful. They were using some of that early, really early fifties art, right? And with the appropriate, with the appropriate sentiments, they're they're wonderful. So you know, I don't think any of us feels a little guilty. We recognize. <laughs> Sparky would never have wanted us wanted to do that, but I but I know that in in the context he would have said, you know, if if that's what if that's what you need to do to keep um, keep people keep people's interest and feed their fascination, that then that's okay. Do you have one more question? Yeah, I I wanted to uh, ask about um, in terms of licensing and collectibles, the thing. Uh, that we also have in our collection are uh, the DVDs of the television programs. And I wondered if there's a chance that there might be more 
TV shows with the Peanuts characters in them any time in the future. Yeah. Okay, here you run into the problem where Sparky said no one else would draw the comic strip. And oh, okay. extrapolating from that, um, in a very early meeting, um, one of the children said um, in response to should we do other television shows, said, no, we can't change Dad's words. Okay. So if you realize that um, basically when they did a when they did a an animated show and Sparky for the most of them Sparky and Bill and Lee talked them out sure. out the themes and Sparky drew on things that he'd already put in the comic strip mm-hmm. so they're recognizable and we did do several shows after he died, <clears throat> one of which was called I Want a Dog for Christmas, and we pulled all the rerun strips and formed them into a story. Sure. And we did Charlie Brown's Christmas Tales, which again, we went back and mined the strip for bits of Christmas with each character, and each character then gives a little talk about his letters to Santa Claus, mm-hmm. his disappointment with what he did or didn't get or whatever. Right. Um, I, you know, they, they lack, they're good, I think they're good, but they lack the charm that things had when Sparky did it, mm-hmm. directly involved. So I don't know, these are all, these are all things that are, are mixed because people want new shows, but how to do, it's hard to know what kind of shows Sparky would be. Sure. about if he were doing it today because times change, people's interests change. I know that it would be the same, and yet and yet, Sparky was always thinking about new things mm-hmm. and reflecting on the culture. So I think I think they would I think there would undoubtedly be things that he would add that would be more spirited and sprightly than we can put in if we're stuck with just replicating. Sure, and he was not just a great artist, but a great writer and had such a great eye for uh, popular culture. Well, I don't have words to tell you how good it is to to speak to you and have you uh, on the collector show with us. Thank you, Mrs. Schultz. Uh, I'm going to... Time once again for the Found Collectible of the Week here on The Collector's Show. And joining us is our good friend, Heather Gallegos. Heather, hello. Hi, Harold. How are you? I am very well, and I know you've got something interesting for us to discover together this week. I do. I think this week would be fun if we talked about collecting vintage lunchboxes. Okay. Now, I had a lunchbox that I took to school when I was a kid. Now, that old lunchbox? Yeah, they were. And uh, I grew up, you know, in the 1960s was my lunchbox time. Is that what we're talking about? Well, actually, we're going to talk about three different types. The metal lunchboxes are really what started in the 1950s, mm-hmm. but there was a whole golden age of lunchbox um, production with, you know, your common, like, TV stars or cartoon characters, action heroes, things like that. Right. That golden age spans from 1950 to 1987. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's 37 years, almost going on 40 years. 
I'm su- I'm surprised it went as long as 87. I don't remember seeing lunchboxes, but then again, I wasn't really looking. Probably when you were in college, you weren't really looking for your lunchboxes. <laughs> no. <laughs> but yeah, they 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 switched uh, in like the late 60s, early 70s. They uh, they really switched from being the metal lunchboxes mm-hmm. over to plastic and vinyl. All right. And actually, it's really quite interesting. In 1971-72, that school year. Concerned parents in Florida were very concerned that um, those metal boxes could be used, like in schoolyard brawls, as weapons. Right. My lunchbox as a weapon. Yeah. I think that would hurt. Though. I mean, especially if they're filled with, you know, a thermos. Well, I guess. Quite a whack to your head. If the kid that was swinging it was big. Yeah, a burly, burly bully. Yeah, you know. a burly third grader. <laughs> but they they took legislation to the Florida State Legislature, and it actually passed. Outlying the metal lunchboxes. So, and then other states, I guess, followed. But I had a metal one when I was a kid. Well, I did too. Now, yeah. getting into the 70s, um, I was more in middle school and then in, in high school. Mm-hmm. But um, seriously, legislation to outlaw yes. the metal lunchbox. Would I kid about this, Harold? Well, I know that you wouldn't, which is why it's so sad. And this was like 40 years ago. Yeah. That's incredible. I had no idea. Because, you know, I mean, I like to collect darn near everything. You do. And um, I'm always, particularly when school starts, looking for Snoopy, which we just spent the whole show talking about that. Right. Um, and they never have them, but I had no idea that they were against the law. In Florida, in select other states, but I didn't find all the states that, that outlawed them. So I, I don't have a complete listing for you. You may be okay. All right. Yeah. I don't want to run afoul of the law. No. And if I ever go to Florida, I'm leaving my metal lunchboxes home. Well, you know, though, you should, right, in Florida. But they can be used for other things. Like carrying sandwiches? Well, yeah. I mean, here's an interesting little um, trivia note. Steve Robinson, who was an astronaut on the Discovery mission, mm-hmm. he carried his astronaut tools, which I'm, I'm sure not all of them, but just a, a sampling, in a Tom Corbett Space Cadet lunchbox from oh. his childhood. On the actual mission. Well, that's kind of cool. Isn't that cool? They can be used for so many things. You could collect them. You could revitalize them. Women can use them as um, very trendy handbags. Yeah. There's lots of uses, but I thought that one was very inventive. Well, that is an unusual thing, and I guess for that matter, you could carry darn near anything you wanted to in your in your lunchbox, but was the, the deal in the 70s, I mean, you said it, they went until 87, but the materials were different, but it sounds like the the deal in the early 70s because of Florida, that that was pretty much the end of the metal lunchbox. That's what it sounds like, yeah. And they switched over. Originally, when plastic was used in the production of lunchboxes, when the metal was still at the heyday, mm-hmm. the plastic was only used for the handles. Mm-hmm. But then, um, like in the later 60s, they started doing the molded plastic for the full lunchbox. Okay. I don't know the exact year, but I do know that that was introduced in 1960. Okay. And the vinyl lunchboxes, they were actually introduced in 1959. Those were the type with the zipper on the top, mm-hmm. yeah, and then the soft-sided. You couldn't really, I mean, I guess if your thermos was in there, you could still kind of knock somebody in the head, but not that you should be. Not that we're condoning that. No, of course not. You, you know, it could still be a weapon, even if it's plastic. Or you could hide a weapon inside of oh one. Oh my gosh, see the things you think about. Well, that's a shame. <laughs> that just really is a shame. Now, let's... Uh, get away from the criminality involved with uh, metal lunchboxes and talk for a moment about collecting them. Okay. Let's, uh, what's a good way to collect a, a lunchbox? Well, a good place to start are really 
flea markets, either indoor or outdoor flea markets. It seems that antique dealers kind of shy away from this area. They don't really have much of an offering. Uh-huh. You can also go to one of our favorite uh, sites online, eBay. Oh, gosh, yeah. I did a quick search today. Uh, just vintage lunch boxes. 770 items came up. Wow. And they range in prices, but the one that I found was from the 1950s, a Davy Crockett, going for $695. Wow. But they had the whole gambit. They had sports characters. They had cartoons, um, TV shows. One of my favorites, Welcome Back, Potter. Oh, get out. Really? I, I was thinking, but it was in the hundreds. I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> That's a lot for a lunchbox. It is. The the whole Davy Crockett craze was before I was born, but what I have gleaned is that uh, that every kid in the United States was nuts for Davy Crockett during yeah, the 1950s. And, yeah, a coonskin cap, that's all you needed. Yeah. Yeah, and then your lunchbox. Man, <laughs> who knew? Uh, who, well, people who collect them, they know. That's right. Where it's at. Now, did you find um, any individuals or places where we could go to learn more about lunchboxes. I did. Some really good websites out there. One is lunchboxpad, so lunchboxpad, all one word, mm-hmm. .com, and they have great history on there, price guides, news, and even some games. Mm-hmm. So if you're a really true collector, they have an IQ test about lunchbox history. Yeah. And so I just logged in to see what I could do. I did not know the answer to any of the questions. Wow. Yeah. And I consider myself to be, you know, fairly intelligent. I, I certainly do. Yeah, thank you. They were tricky, very hard questions. So if you are a hardcore collector, this is not for you. See, here's what I really thought, mm-hmm. is that um, the lunch boxes I, I owned were all by thermos. And what I really thought was that it was just a way that the thermos company came up with to sell more thermoses. Oh, no. But it's not. It is not, no. Nope. No, no. It, actually, uh, Thermos is, is one of the manufacturers, but there were several. And, you know, like the first one that was ever made was uh, the first character lunchbox, mm-hmm. Along Cassidy, mm-hmm. in 1950. And the uh, makers of that one were able to get it right out at the beginning of that school year. They sold over 600,000 units Man. in the first year. And uh, they cost $2.39 each. Now, in 1950, that was steep. That, well, yeah, exactly. That's pretty pricey. At the, for for a lunchbox for a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just for school. Yeah. They were actually called a hoppy at that point for Hopalong Cassidy. Ah. That was kind of cute. That is cute. And one thing I also uncovered is they're not always referred to as lunchboxes. Yeah. They were also referred to as lunch kits. Okay. Yeah, so another term to look for when you're really looking. If you're searching online, that you know, and sometimes lunchbox is two words, sometimes it's one word. Okay. So just, you know, play around with your searches as you go on different shops. Lunch kit. Okay, got it. Yeah. Now, is there, um, like, the International Brotherhood of <laughs> Lunchbox Collectors or a society we ought to know about? I didn't find any societies, but I did find several announcements for uh, museums mm-hmm. online. Now, I don't know if they all are open all the time, but one that I did find is in Columbus, Georgia. It's just very simple, the Lunchbox Museum. And they're open. Wait, to- sorry, the Lunchbox Museum? Yeah. Columbus, Georgia. Get out. I know. Tuesday through Sunday, they're open from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. I also found a few other listings, but I don't know if they're open. I couldn't find hours or telephone numbers. Okay. But I did find the, find the Lunchbox Museum and Antique Store okay. in California. That's owned and operated by someone called Retro Deb and her husband.
Retro Deb. <laughs> and Dwayne? Okay. But they've collected for over 20 years, and I think they have something like over 800 lunchboxes. Oh, man. That's a lot. That's one thing, too, when I was doing my research, not only going to those flea markets, but also telling other people. Because mm-hmm. the more people you tell, they'll see one when they're out. You know, people travel, oh. and they'll pick them up for you. So that's another way. So like networking for collecting. That's right. Always get to network. Always. And a huge tip, just to keep in mind, if you are going to start a collection, yes. you really want to yeah. You, when you're cleaning them, try only to clean dirty spots. Don't submerge them in water. Okay. Thinking about rusting, fading your paint, you know, just things to keep in mind. Right. Another tip that I found was that, you know, you may see one that you really want, and if it has a few things in it, pick it up anyway, even because you may never find it again. But if you do find it again in mint condition, you know, you won't kick yourself for not getting it with a ding in it. You know what I sure. mean? Sure. Oh, yeah. So if, if you see it, get it. So, I, were I going to, you know, really get serious about it, I would do the thermos ones because those are the ones I always had because you could put your your drink in it and it was still cold. It would stay nice and cold. That's right. And um, but your sandwiches, a yeah, a little cup on top. And but sometimes your sandwiches would um oh. be flattened. Well, yeah, but but really a very utilitarian lunch pack for kids to take to school. And everything you needed. Okay. Well, the found collectible of the week this week, Lunchboxes. Give us those websites again, if you don't mind. Sure. Lunchboxpad, all one word, dot com. Really great site. History, price guides, everything you'd need. Um, the Lunchbox Museum, another one, that's their site. And that Retro Deb, Lunchbox Museum and Antique Store in Nice, California. Outstanding. Yeah. Well, as always, Heather, thank you so much for adding to the Collector's Show with your found collectible of the week. And we will return again next week with a new show about the world of collecting. Please join us then. Thanks for listening. I'm Harold Nickel, and it's Web Talk Radio. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you some art. Thanks for listening to The Collector's Show. See you next week. If I had a million dollars, I'd buy you I'd be rich.